Shalom, and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I am Rabbi J. Tel Rav, and each week we will have a conversation about new ways to exist in the world as intentional presences and ways of making our lives mean something. Whether you've been exploring Jewish spirituality for years, or this is your first time considering it, we're glad you're here. I'll remind you that this podcast takes a look at a book by Rabbi Rami Shapiro called Open Secrets, a list of fictional letters between a rabbi and his student from the 1800s or so, and it's really a presentation of Rabbi Shapiro's theology of non-duality, that is, a teaching that there is no other supernatural being up there in the sky watching and making decisions about our lives. There's no supernatural explanations for the universe. Reality is amazing enough, and the explanations that we require are all readily available to us, and all of this we call God. God is the sum total of the universe, not outside it, not other than it. There's no place where I stop and God begins. The universe spinning and expanding and everything, everywhere and everyone and every now is an expression of that divine reality. It's all an expression of action, an action that I like to call God. We've looked into this. We've talked about it, explored it, and this week I invite a new guest to join me. This is Eli Pardo. He is a young adult having grown up through Temple Sinai, whose parents, and in fact his whole family, were honored as one of the most central families at Temple Sinai, who has been involved in every aspect of what goes on here. Eli was one of my students growing up through our program. He and I used to sit uh, while supposedly preparing for his bar mitzvah, when we were supposed to be writing a Devar Torah, and we would talk about big ideas from even that young age. Eli, you've been an incredibly thoughtful, esoteric, and spiritual young adult. And I'm so pleased to have you back now after your first year of college. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Uh, Home for the summer and willing to sit down and have a conversation with me. So, Eli, welcome. Thank you. And as we start each time, you know, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us about your journey. Tell us how you came to be, who you are, what you are, where you are. Well, as you said earlier, I grew up in Stanford, grew up here at Temple Sinai. And um, my path has basically just been doing a lot of Judaism-related things, and that has basically shaped who I am. I've done a Israel a high school in Israel program called Heller High, and I've gone to camp for several years um, called Eisner Camp, and you know I did other things at the temple, like I was in a Boy Scout troop, Troop 15, for a while, and. That helped me out a lot, and yeah, so basically I've just been, you know, going through it and experiencing everything. And you told me uh, when we were standing at the Oneg last week or two weeks ago that uh, this past year at Hillel, uh, at school, you also took over leadership of a service for the Reform Shabbat gathering, and I think you probably knew just about how happy and proud that was going to make your rabbi when you shared that with me. And kudos, it made me that proud. Uh, I, w- I couldn't believe when you told me that you did that. That was really awesome. Yeah, well, I'm also doing it with my best friend named Simone Silverberg. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be leading services all next year at Albany, too. Oh, that's great. 
Well, we're going to dive into a chapter this week that I'm excited about and a little intimidated by. It's a difficult chapter because not only does it deal with really big questions that a lot of people have thought through and have wrestled with in Judaism, but it's a, a topic that requires a lot of other outside concepts. And so for those of you who are new to the podcast, I'm going to pause at a couple moments through this chapter to just explain a term or to add a little context to the words that uh, that are being used. Uh, so we're jumping into the conversation between uh, Rabbi Yerachmiel ben Yisrael, the rabbi whose words we have, the, the fictional rabbi, and the student who he's writing to named Aaron Herschel. So this chapter is on the soul. My dearest Aaron Herschel, Am I so old that we should speak of souls and death? I will assume you are simply curious and in no hurry for me to check out the accuracy of what I teach. Your thoughts on the nature of the human soul were most interesting. You grasped the problem immediately. If the soul is a permanent self that lives forever, then the entire nature of God is undone. God is both yesh and ain, meaning the transient and the timeless. Only the former imagines selves that are separate or souls. The latter knows only oneness. Eternal life in the world to come is a concept arising from the desire of the seeming separate self, the neshama, to deny its eventual an inevitable dissolution in death. It's a fear of death that leads us to imagine separate souls and an afterlife. In truth, there's none of this. The conventional notion of soul as eternal self is simply the neshama's sense of separateness projected into a never-ending future. The sad thing is that with all our efforts to bolster what is ultimately a false sense of self and eternity, we miss the real immortality of which we are a part. Ain, that aspect of reality that is empty of self and separateness. It's deathless, birthless, selfless, and timeless, and we humans are no less ain than yesh. The human being the individual, is like a wave on an ocean. From the surface, each wave appears unique, independent, and transient. Yet beneath the surface, all waves are one, interdependent and eternal. From the perspective of the surface, each wave is born, runs its course, and dies. From the deeper perspective of the ocean, there is no birth, no separate life, no death, it's the same with people. On the surface, from the perspective of Yesh, we appear to be born, live, and die. But beneath the surface, from the perspective of Ain, we find that there is no separate self, and thus no birth, no death, and no destiny. Insofar as we tap what is beneath the surface, we're calm, compassionate, and just. Insofar as we focus only on the surface, we are anxious, violent, and frightened. Rather than define soul 
as an essential and deathless self, which we know to be false, we should understand soul as human consciousness. That's really important. I'm going to read that one more time. We should understand soul as human consciousness. According to our sages, there are five dimensions to human consciousness, each one larger and more inclusive than the ones before it. The first and least inclusive is nefesh, or life force, which is the level of soul that operates according to the dictates of nature. It is nefesh that tells your heart to beat and your lungs to breathe. The second is ruach, instinct, and is the level of soul that operates to ensure survival as a living being. It is ruach that tells you to duck when a stone flies by your head. Ruach and nefesh are unconscious in that they operate without a fully developed sense of separate self. A fully conscious self arises with the third level of soul, nishama, or ego. It is nishama that says, I, me, and mine. It's nishama that insists that it's separate and self-contained. It is nishama that imagines it can live without the body and thus survive death. The fourth level of soul is chaya, cosmic consciousness, the level of consciousness that is aware of the interconnectedness of all things as ein. Chaya still has a sense of self, but it does not see itself as separate from other selves. Chaya sees itself as a knot in an infinitely knotted net, unique and yet at one with all other knots. Chaya knows itself as part of God, but does not yet see itself as God. And the fifth level of soul is Yechida, unity consciousness. Here, there is no Yesh or Ain, just a pure, tentless knowing without knower or known. Yechida is completely at one with God. When the great Kabbalist Abraham Abu Lafia, who lived in the 1200s, proclaimed at the height of mystic revelry, Ani Hu, I am God. He was speaking from the perspective of Yechida, where everything is known as a manifestation of the one thing, God. These five levels of soul correspond to five dimensions of reality each dimension larger than and inclusive of the ones before it. This is what our Kabbalists called the five worlds. Ruach, consciousness, knows the world as Yetzirah, the instinctual world of animals that have not yet reached reflective self-consciousness. Nishama, consciousness, knows the world as Berea, the world of creative, self-aware, and reflective beings, especially human beings. Chaya knows the world as Atzilut, the world of divine emanation where all forms are seen and honored as aspects of God. And Yechida consciousness knows the world as Adam Kadmon, primordial reality, pure spirit, formless emptiness. All five levels of consciousness and all five dimensions of reality are present in each of us at all times. We tend to focus 
on the self-conscious nishama and the Bria world of competing selves and to ignore all other realms and means of knowing unless something goes wrong. For example, we become aware of asiya and nefesh when there's something wrong with us physically. A broken leg demands we focus on asiya and pulls us away from all other modes of knowing to concentrate and deal with our pain. We become aware of Yetzirah and Ruach when we're confronted with unexpected danger. We're suddenly face to face with a bear and our minds and bodies react. We run away. There's no need for self-reflection. Ruach tells Nefesh to run and our legs run. We become aware of Bria and Neshama every time we say I, me, and mine. This is the world that occupies most of our attention. It's the world in which we feel most at home. It's also the world from which most of our suffering comes. We become aware of Atzilut and Chaya when we sleep, or when we're deep in prayer or selfless meditation, or when we're blessed with a sudden insight or intuition that comes from beyond our ordinary ability to know. Both sleep and meditation quiet Nishama's incessant I-ing, and we are exposed to a more inclusive reality. Intuition happens only when Nishama is quiet, for only then can intuition be heard above the din of Bria. And we become aware of Adam Kadmon and Yechida when we are aware of nothing at all. This is the paradox of Yechida consciousness. It is that aspect of ourselves that realizes there are no selves. You do not know you are Yechida consciousness because there is no you to know in Adam Kadmon. Only when you return to Chaya or Neshama from an awakening of Yechida can you sense the experience. You feel lighter, more joyous, and at peace with self and other and filled with compassion for everyone and everything. So let's return to our wave and ocean analogy and see if we can pull all this business about soul into some clear form. Imagine yourself to be a wave in the ocean. Asiya is the raw stuff of the ocean, and laws that dictate its nature and capacity to wave are the doings of nefesh. Without nefesh, you could not emerge from the ocean. But you do not identify yourself with this. Nefesh is pre-conscious. Yetzirah is the world of currents and surf. The laws that govern the shapes of waves and their duration and time are the workings of Ruach consciousness. These, too, are pre-conscious. For while they are essential to your coming into form, you do not usually think of them when you become aware of your form. Briah is the dimension of separate waves. Each wave is unique, and recognizing uniqueness is the work of Nishama consciousness. This is what we call normal consciousness. Atzilut is the ocean. The ocean creates an infinite number of waves, but it's always the same ocean. When we use our Chaya consciousness, we know this to be so. If Nefesh and Ruach are pre-conscious, that is, below the awareness of Nishama, Chaya is transconscious, including Nishama, in a larger reality. 
Adam Kadmon is the essence of the ocean, the very wetness of water itself. When we tap into Yechida consciousness, we know the ocean as it knows itself, not as surface or deep, but simply as wetness. Here, all the distinctions of Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, and Chaya merge into an ineffable oneness. I cannot even say it is one, for that implies two. I cannot say that it is the one, for that implies the many. Adam Kadmon is neither one or many. It is simply non-dual. Non-dual simply means that there is only one thing and all things are manifestations of it. All waves are a manifestation of the one ocean. All creation is a manifestation of the one God. So what are you to take with you from all of this? Three things. First, you are not what you think you are. The you that thinks, the neshama, is only part of who you are. Second, the extent to which you insist that the you, neshama, says you are, is the only you there is, is the extent to which you are alienated from God, from nature, and from other beings. For alienation is at the heart of what it is to see the world through neshama's eyes. And third, you are also and already chaya and yechida consciousness. You already know that you are one with the one and intuit in a nonverbal way that you are nothing but the one. What is left for you to learn is how to till the hard-packed self of neshama and let in the life-giving breath of chaya and yechida. That is a conversation for another time. For now, it is time for the evening prayers. Vishalom. So that's a pretty meaty chapter, eh, Eli? And it is. <laughs> I did like the, uh, well, I liked the whole thing. The whole thing was very interesting. But I really liked the end. The end was very, was very down to earth for me. It pulled it, it pulled it into something usable for you? Well... It's just that it, it says, um, this is a conversation for another time. For now, it is time for the evening prayers, right? So that's almost a way of saying, yes, we can think about consciousness all we want. Yes, we can think about whether or not God is this, you know, form of consciousness that we, were all, that we are all a part of or that we can be a part of and are separate from or whatever you want to think of it as and there's a whole chapter that just explained it but at the same time we're never really going to know mm -hmm. you know there's no way to actually put your finger on it mm -hmm. it's not like the definition of newton's gravity or something and so after we're done playing with big ideas we go back to living in the real world yeah there's a book up on my shelf over my shoulder that i actually haven't read but i love the title of it's called and after the ecstasy, the laundry. That's by Jack Kornfeld. Uh, nice Jewish boy who found his spirituality in Buddhism. I think I, I hear you saying it. Like, you can have these big moments. And after that, you know, Rabbi Yerachmiel here says, it's time for evening prayers. He says, I got to go do the laundry. And you and I are saying, all right, so, you know, you don't have to figure it all out right now. You, mm -hmm. you go back on to, to living in the real world. Um, 
So, are there any concepts in the chapter we just read that you'd like to think aloud about first? Well, the, um, the one thing that really, really stuck with me from the first time it was mentioned was the waves. Because, I mean, if you think about it, that really is how nature works, you know? We are all part of the one, you know? Again, I, well, a person, a being, is not the one. But without plants, animals can't live. Without animals, plants can't live. And, you know, there's all these things that just work perfectly with life. And, I mean, I personally think that that, that alone is enough to believe something, you know? It doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be. It can just be the laws of nature. But regardless, that's incredibly beautiful, you know? Absolute harmony. Yeah. And I mean, where else can you find that? So think about this question for a second. Give me as accurate an answer as is available to you. Uh, number one, how often does that realization settle in on you? Um, about every hour and a half, I'd say. Really? I think about it all the time. And then, and then after I think about it for a bit, and I think about how crazy that is and how amazing it is and just how happy I am that I can sit in it and it and it works and it's fine and I mean we as humans are doing a lot to understand it but we're not even we've done so much and we're not even at the tip of the iceberg you know it's not even like we've hit the tip of the iceberg we're not even there so I mean I just think about that and you know, sometimes I want to cry. Sometimes I'm just like, this is beautiful. And then I, you know, go back to doing my laundry or whatever. Happens, <laughs> okay, so I'm going to change my second question then. When you have those experiences, maybe every hour and a half even, how long do they last? Not very long, only about a couple minutes. But Even that to me sounds really long. For me, I don't have that experience as often as you just said. And when I have it, it's powerful, but it probably lasts a couple of seconds. It's probably, you know, five seconds if it's an extended period. Uh, so you're doing an internship this summer. You were telling me about the other day. Yeah, that's where I just you, came from. So you're doing this internship. You told me you're doing a lot in front of computers this summer. Um, uh, some of it beneath your level of expertise, some of it above your level of expertise. I'm wondering, over the course of a workday, when you're focused on assignments given to you by others, tasks that are, you know, the equivalent of professional laundry. Uh, does it happen for you in the midst of all that? It does, because, well, I'm a very, my mind likes to wander. So I can't do anything for too long. It's kind of like working out. You know, you can't just work out for 24 hours a day, every day of the week. You know, that's not going to work. That's not how your body works. Um, your mind can't work like that either. So I'll be doing something for a while, and then I'll either get so far into the habit of it that, you know, muscle memory takes over, and I'm not even looking at the screen anymore. I'm just, you know, just mm -hmm. thinking, you know? Do you practice meditation? Is that anything you've, you've ever played around with? I used to, and I really used to like it, but now I kind of just want to go to sleep whenever I do it, so. <laughs> You're getting old. Um, and I am. So I also saw my first um, dead cover band uh, next to you. Uh, you and your dad and a bunch of friends took me to my first show in, uh, where was that, the Capitol Theater? Yeah. Um, 
And I watched you in an element that is really, really precious to you. You love concerts and you love the dead in particular. Um, when you're at a show like that, what's happening for you spiritually? Well, I'm going to quote the cantor here. Not directly. I don't remember the exact quote. But it was something at Ruach, I think, about how, you know, her form of religion is that it can be expressed with music. And I feel very similarly. I mean, I love to play guitar. I do it all the time. I'm okay. I'm not particularly amazing at it or anything. I'm not a Jerry Garcia or Jimi Hendrix or something. But, you know, I'll play music and my cat will be next to me and she has no idea what's going on, you know? To her, it's noises. And to me, it's, it's you know, you, you play around with a few chords, doesn't have to be a lot, and you mix in the pentatonic scale, and all of a sudden, there's this beautiful harmony that goes on. You hit the right note, the right chord, and it's just amazing. And so when I'm at a concert, I don't have to be doing it. Someone else is doing it for me, right in front of me, in real time. And the fact that we can physically process that, and not even start to think of how amazing it is just the fact that we can process it is so i don't know it's it's on you know wow there's a youtube video that i'm going to send you a link for after we're done here and i'll put it in the the show notes for everyone else it's um uh bobby mcferrin doing a ted talk explaining the pentatonic scale to the audience and he <laughs> it it's a spiritual moment when he gets the whole audience to sing the pentatonic notes, having trained them on all of the notes until they get to one that he hasn't trained them. And he jumps into the spot for the next note, and without prepping the audience, everybody sings it perfectly. Because there's some sort of uh, visceral relationship to that set of sounds that transcends the explicable. You know, you don't need to have someone tell you what the next note is. It just feels right. Uh, so I, I really relate to what I just heard you describing. Let's switch over to, to another piece of this chapter, which um, I think a lot of people are going to pick up on. And that is the, the rather brief conversation about the implications of soul, ego, and afterlife. So what he's explaining is that that part of us that needs to do the laundry or, uh, or whatever, go back to work, um, that's the ego. That's the, the part of us that says I and me is separate from you and, and yours. And that's the part that says, I don't want to die. I want me to keep going. And he's saying that's, there's truth in that, but it's not the whole truth. That there are different elements of you all of which are necessary to put together the whole thing. There has to be an ego-driven self to do laundry or to put food in your mouth. But in reality, it's an illusion. In order to keep your body alive, all you are is a different form from your cat and your guitar. You know, the, the material that makes up you is just configured differently. And when the body ceases to operate, the energy dissipates back into the one, into the whole, uh, and we close our eyes, and this piece of the of the ocean, this particular wave, fades back into the ocean. 
And for someone who, and I don't know your theology, but for someone who holds on very carefully to the idea of an afterlife, that they're going to be rejoined with loved ones, that they're going to um, have eternal reward, that's a big piece, especially in Christian theology, uh, this would be very disorienting, very upsetting. Uh, what are your thoughts? How do you respond to the idea that at the end of this lifespan, your your neshama, the one that says, me, I'm Eli, I matter, that that self-consciousness just ceases. What does it say? Yeah, where are you? Well, so there's the, there's the I, the me, right? And this is something that I heard, I think I read in an article that somebody sent me, but it was basically saying that our brains apparently run on somewhere around 20 watts. You might have to fact check me on that one, but 20 watts of power is like a light bulb, you know? And that's how much energy it takes to say I, to say me, say I need to do my laundry. And if you think about it, instinctively, you don't do your laundry, you know? I have to physically, like, set a timer or something for me to remember to do my laundry. A bird just knows to build its nest. A spider just knows to build its web. And so it's almost like a force of nature because we instinctively have to constantly remind ourselves to do everything, but we don't have to instinctively remind ourselves, you know, drink water. Your body tells you when to drink water. It tells you when to do these things. And the fact that we have to think about other things makes us feel superior. Uh -huh. And we're only getting recycled just like that bird that knows to build its nest. And so is it a little sad, a little anticlimactic? Maybe. But honestly, we don't know. No one knows the answer of what happens after you die. But I kind of feel like us going back into that ocean is exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. My... Uh my my study partner and I have have used in studying non-duality for years now. We've used my dog Dave as uh, as a, a foil to talk about this, similar to what I just heard you saying. And we've wondered if we're sitting there trying to to attain moments of transcendence where the sense of self, the awareness kind of falls away and we just are. We're at peace with all that is. We're, we don't see ourselves as separate. That's a really hard thing for humans to do because of that ego, which is constantly yelling in our ear. Uh, whereas for my dog, it's actually pretty easy. You know, he spends most of his time in non-dual space. You know, he's just wandering through the world, taking it all in, a part of the world, at ease with it. He's not worried about death. He's not worried about afterlife or or his you know, maybe he growls a little bit if you try to take his food that might be his ego but for the most part he lives most of his life in the kind of spiritual space that we have to work really hard to attain mm -hmm. which i think is really fun um hmm. um so what do you what would you say to somebody who who feels threatened by the the suggestion that the ego is what's making them think they matter. I'll, I'll say that with, with caution. Uh, you know, because from the point of view of the universe, like you were saying, humans, in our sum total of achievement, we've barely even perceived the tip of the iceberg, much less 
done any chipping away at understanding it. But somebody who feels like, no, 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 I really matter. How do you, um, how would you navigate that conversation with them? Well, I mean, I think in a way all animals feel that they matter. But I can't go into anyone else's brains. I can't go into a squirrel's brain and run around collecting acorns for a while. And I, I just can't do that. I'm very limited in what I can do. And unless we sit there and accept that that's the truth, this is who we are, then we're just going to go crazy. And you'll never know what happens after death. You'll never know how much you matter, especially while you're alive. That's, that's one thing that, you know, fame has taught us, is very few people who are very famous, you know, eternally famous, knew they were going to be in their life. So a lot of people may feel that way, that they feel threatened, but the truth is you're never going to know. As, you know, same thing with doing your laundry or going to your evening prayers, you're, you'll never know, and you can ponder, you can feel that you matter, quotation marks for those that didn't see. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to you, you matter as much as you want to, and you don't matter as much as you can accept. Oh, that's lovely. Huh. Oh, I, I love that. I also, I, my brain got stuck on, on an expression you just used, which is very few people are eternally famous. And I can't imagine anybody arguing for eternal anything in the human mm -hmm. realm. You know, well, right. You know, uh, what feels eternal for us would be, gosh, um, Moses, you know, and that's, boy, if Moses existed, then that would be, let's say, for uh, 3,500 years ago, mm. you know, 3,500 years is just a blip. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, will we remember a Moses 3,500 years from now? Who knows if we haven't destroyed ourselves. Uh, but eternally famous just caught in my mind on that. Um, so it, this is kind of a, <laughs> the question sounds cliche. And you may just say, I'm not even going to answer that because it's too cliche. But for Eli Pardo, as you're, as you're maturing through your experience of the world and using meditation differently, uh, bringing your consciousness and awareness into different environments like work and adulthood, uh, relating to your Judaism differently than you did even a year ago, uh, not to mention 10 years ago, <laughs> the question I have, and I'm, I'm struggling to find a different way to ask it, but I'm going to simply say, what's the purpose of life? You know, what is what is the meaning? What are you here to do? What do you what would feel like a good use of your life uh, at the end when you're laying on your deathbed at God willing, 120 years old? That's our traditional length of life. Uh, what will you look back at and say, ah, good, I did, I did what I needed to do with my life? Well, there's the same perspective thing. I can look at my perspective, I can look at my several many 18 years that I have under my belt, and I can say, well, I feel that I have done something very good with my life. I feel like I've helped someone out, I've picked up someone's garbage, you know, whatever I did, right? And look back at that and I can be really proud. I can also look back at it and say, I've done absolutely nothing, I haven't done jack, you know? I'm 
woke up for however many 18 times 365 days is almost 19 and you know say well i haven't produced a record-breaking album i haven't invented the next you know big thing like a flying car or magnetic propelled jet or whatever you want to say but honestly and this is 100 percent just pure honesty i think i would be glad if what i did at the end of every day made me sit down lay down in bed and said you know what i'm happy hmm. and that's all that's all i have to do and i think you know that's i mean everyone has their missions but that's all anyone has to do i'd be a cherry on top if i saved the world from the zombie apocalypse <laughs> or something but you know <laughs> chances of that one happening not very high you know there's eight billion of us cherry, out though. there <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it interesting that that's where fantasy comes in harry potter mm-hmm. is kind of the the uh the best example that jumps to mind but I, it wouldn't take me long to come up with a whole list of others but every one of us in many ways feels like we are painfully average until some giant comes along and tells you that no you're not average you're special you're a wizard in fact you're not just a wizard you're the most famous wizard who's ever lived and that you know there's that little piece i think that speaks to the ego that that says i can't just be a wave i have to i must be more than just a wave and uh and boy i so relate to that no i, I, I let me say it differently of course i relate to it but it's i've come to a very pleasant relationship to that part of myself understanding what it is that needs so desperately to be special and to be liked and to be eternally famous um, and I can put it where it belongs and then I can go right back to being not just an average boy but being no more or less holy than the table uh, and the bird that uh, I, I feel very very grateful to be on par with all the other material of the universe the other energy of the universe yeah I like that mm. I do mm. I also think very few people this is going back to the the ocean and you know the wave and all that and how we all contribute back to the ocean eventually and I just what am I trying to say here I don't know what I'm trying to say You know what? Why don't, why don't you move on to the next question? Sure. Maybe sure. I'll No, it's okay. Um, let me see if I had other uh, notes written down here for us to make sure we got to. Um, <clears throat> so I would like to return to that, that sentence that I chose to read twice mm-hmm. uh, when I said that we should understand soul as human consciousness and I wonder what you think others out there this is a little harder question rather than what do you think of that uh, what do you think others would feel about this you know in the the normative zeitgeist out there where we seem to think about soul as something really almost 
almost tangible. You could almost point to where it is in the human body. You know, you can't touch it. It's not, it's not corporeal. But people feel very strongly about soul. What do you think people would respond with to the idea that uh, the soul is only what you think of as yourself? It's just your self-consciousness, or it's your—it's literally your consciousness. Uh, I know that's a hard thing to, to state in the way I did. What do you think people would feel? But how do you think that that, that would hold up out there in, uh, in general discourse? Well, that depends on what you define as consciousness. I mean, if we define it as these five attributes, I think people would be okay with it. Mm -hmm. I think there would be a couple of people out there that might be a little bit upset. Mm -hmm. You know, there isn't some higher power that's making me do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Or not what I want to do. What happens? There's no, like, well, this isn't arguing that there isn't any fate, but, you know. Yep. I think some people might be upset about that, but I think, in general, if we define consciousness at, as these five things, then that rules out a great number of things in this you know, world, in this mm -hmm. universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, does that mean trees don't have consciousness? Does that mean ants and you know other little critters, they don't have consciousness? I mean, they, they want to do the first, like, what, three or four things on yeah, this list? Yeah, certainly the first one. Right. Uh, you know, the, the simple functional elements of nutrients and, and some of and many of them survival you know an, an ant if you if you put a obstacle down right in front of it it will go the other direction trying to survive uh so yeah one and two for sure uh, right so i mean there's there's that and i i think that a lot of people is how people feel not necessarily how i feel people might disagree and agree that you know it some would feel <clears throat> that consciousness is not is not your soul there's no way consciousness can be your soul because you know there, there's a thing telling me there's something that I, I i dream things you know and i want things and all this stuff and, and my consciousness can't just be me telling me what to do and you know the, the greater world around me that's not my soul my soul is me it's mm -hmm. it's in my heart it's in my brain whatever mm -hmm. some people might just say well you know that's kind of true we think it, there you go i think therefore i am right yeah um and this is again paraphrasing but there was a little little TikTok that I saw from Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I personally love the guy. I think he's brilliant. But he said something that I found very interesting, and honestly, I first thought it was a little bit troubling um, with consciousness, because he was saying that you know we look at a mouse, and we don't. Well, I might not have been a mouse, but you know, look at some animal, and it's not. It's not conscious, you know? I mean, it wants food. It wants to reproduce. doesn't want to die. What else does it have? It doesn't think like we're thinking. It's not going to go and make a podcast. <laughs> and so what? what's the drive? What makes it conscious? And we're sitting here all high up on our horses, you know, sitting on our thrones and our, you know, at our dining tables, all this stuff with our heating, explaining that we we ourselves are conscious and what he was saying was who who are we to decide that we're conscious you know obviously we don't know if there's any other life out there but let's say there was and let's say there was aliens and they came here 
that alone would make them significantly smarter than we are. And, you know, he wasn't saying this, but my first computer science teacher named uh, Chandan Sarkar, Mr. Sarkar, I called him Mr. Sarkar, was explaining that if we had 16 fingers instead of 10, we would be able to think in hexadecimal. And that would make us process things at the same speed as a computer. And so, you know, not same speed, but, you know, similarly, the similar process. There we go. And he, Mr. Sarkar, was saying that if that happened, they would be far more intelligent at, you know, with numbers, signs, and they'd be able to realize things much faster than our decimal ten-finger hands can do. Mm-hmm. And what Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying along those lines, that if they came by and they had 25 attributes and not five attributes for consciousness, we would be nothing to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, they'd think a mouse was ultra-unconscious, but we would be no more than monkeys to them. Mm-hmm. And so are we conscious? Does that, if that's the case, does that make us conscious? Mm-hmm. Or does it just make us another wave? Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's a very, very prominent thing that people feel, you know? I mean, especially in your teenage years, which I'm in at the moment. Do I matter? You know, does it matter if I pass my test? Do I have to go to school? Mom, I feel sick. I don't want to go, you know? All these things. To you, it doesn't matter, you know? To you, the only thing that matters is trying to figure out where you belong, who you are. And, you know, after your teenage years, I think you get a little bit of maturity and you kind of get a little kick in the head that says, like, shut up, you know? Like, that, that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. What, whether or not you feel you matter isn't important, just that you're alive. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I don't know if that makes us lose consciousness or gain it. So there's that was me explaining a whole bunch of loopholes with your question, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. is our soul consciousness? I feel like that's really just for the individual to decide. Wow. There were so many things you put on the table that I wanted to respond to and think further about uh, that I'm going to have to let go of most of but I will I will remind you of the day that you celebrated becoming bar mitzvah and uh, and it's a tradition we have at Temple Sinai where we stand the student in front of the bima next to in your case his parents and then grandparents if we've got them next to them and sometimes we get a great grandparent and then we pass the Torah through those arms to the kid and uh, I often say some version of uh, Eli, look to your left. You see your parents and your grandparents. Well, your great-grandparents are standing there too, but you can't see them anymore. And your great-great-grandparents, and I I continue that line back and back and back and back. And then I'll say sometimes, Eli, look to your right. There are your children. You know, this is a 13-year-old kid standing there. There are your children next to you, and there's some snickering. And then there are your grandchildren on, on the other side of them. And I try to help a kid pull themselves out of that narcissistic sense that I am the center of it all just for a moment. And while I know that it's almost impossible for the kid to really connect to that moment, my hope is that the grandparents uh, who are having a very different experience do have that transcendent moment, just a touch, where they remember their own bar mitzvah and they remember their grandparents at that bar mitzvah. And they imagine the great, 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 great grandchildren that are never going to know their names, but there's some comfort in knowing that in my small piece of the story, I do matter. Um, I'm essential and 
you know, we're not eternally famous, uh, to borrow a phrase from a sage. Um, huh. Well, here's another thought about that, is I believe when you talked about my great, incredible family, that most of which I couldn't see, and couldn't even begin to imagine the length of. I think you were explaining some. Maybe not. Maybe this was someone else, or you know, you talking at a different time. But there—that's a chain, right? This this chain of two people make a child. That one, that person finds another person. You have this little family tree. But in this case, it's a chain leading right down to you, and then your chain keeps going on after you. And you know, there's the um what if my link gets broken? You know, if my chain gets broken, you know, how does that affect anything past me? How does that affect anything before me? And I don't think I've ever actually thought of this until right now, but if your link is broken, nothing past you can exist, and everything before you will always exist. So even if you don't happen to make an impact in the future, the past has already had so much of an impact that you alone matter in, <laughs> in your own way, and you don't have to you don't have to procreate to keep that cycle going. Obviously, if you do, then yes, it chain keeps going, but it doesn't necessarily have to. For mm -hmm. at, at one point in time, mm -hmm. so many things had to happen, trillions and trillions of things had to happen for you to be standing there. And getting past a Torah, you know, like, I mean, you can start with, you know, my, my great, however many greats to the power of whatever grandparents met each other in, I don't know, somewhere, and fell in love and had somebody, and eventually that brought down to me. And yes, you can think of it, like, all these little things had to happen. But I mean, you can go way further right? I mean, you can, you can, ionic bonding, you know, all these things yes. have to be so perfect yes. for us to be sitting right here talking to a microphone. And there is, in a piece, there is the, the beauty of the Shehechianu. It says, you know, God, you gave us life. You know, there, there already is most of that last thing you said, ionic bonds and genetics and evolutionary uh, processes, you gave us life and you kept us alive. You know, that's another element of what you're saying that uh, you, you know, I could have gotten hit by a bus on the way here or any number of other paths that would have kept me from being right here where I am. And then that l last clause, and allowed us to arrive at this moment, for me has been a statement of consciousness to say, not only did you set up all the circumstances, and by you I mean the universe, not only did the circumstances align such that we sit here, you and me, uh, talking to a, you and I, talking to a microphone, but we have the, the ability to turn this conversation into more than just uh, a conversation in which you order fast food at, at McDonald's. We can take moments and make them meaningful. Um, and you were saying if you if you lay down in bed at the end of the day and you're happy, uh, and you said before that, how might you be happy by I don't know picking up some some litter along the way or giving someone a hand, making their lives a little bit better and easier? Uh, those are meaningful 
expressions of existence. Uh, and maybe if you choose not to or are unable to procreate and you are the, the end of that long line of circumstance, Dainu, it would have been enough. You know, it's, it's enough that that's what you're here for. Um, I, I think that's an incredible observation, Eli. I'm, I'm humbled by it. And yes, I did say the thing about you being a link in an unbroken chain of transmission. Uh, that's it's one of my favorite things to say. <laughs> wow. My guess is that everyone who's who's listening uh, understands fully now why it was so meaningful for me to be able to invite you to have this conversation. No, well, maybe. Suppose that's for them to decide. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, if they're still listening, my guess is they've decided. Um, are there other things you'd like to talk about? Well, there's the not in an infinitely knotted net. There's the, that's like the same. It is. Same thing as the chain, really. It's the chain. It is the I, that experiential piece of the story. Uh, if it were possible to have a cosmic perspective and to see it all, then we would laugh, or that, that consciousness would laugh at the surprise and shock of little human who suddenly opens their eyes. So, yeah, I I like I like what you're doing, which is to stretch consciousness beyond the um, the ego level of our own little our own little world. Uh, you know, it's like a fish in a tank swimming around and thinking that's all there is. You know, because that's all he's ever known. Uh, what would it What would it take to stretch his his understanding to something beyond it? We talked about that at Torah study the other week. Uh, what kind of miracle? would need to happen for us to throw away everything that we thought we knew and to accept a completely different basis of belief. Our brains would probably try to work really hard to to resist or to, to push off that kind of challenge to what we rely on as truth because any kind of disruption to our reliable blueprint for reality that hurts. That's uncomfortable. Uh, wormholes are uncomfortable. We don't, we don't know what to do with that. Light speed is uncomfortable. Eternity. Uh, those are uncomfortable concepts because they go beyond us and we can't, we can't really manage them very well. I couldn't do it. Yeah. If I was told that some central belief I had didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But that's very interesting, though. Yeah. You know, how hard we work to make sense of everything out there and that is as you were saying in the beginning exactly why religion is you mm -hmm. know it's a thing mm -hmm. because we can't accept that things just are yeah and we need an explanation and i personally love that yeah. i personally really like being a part of this you know figuring out and i've said this to plenty of people some people don't get it some people do. I'm sure you will. But um, that I do believe in God in a way. Um, I don't, it's not, I come to services and I do pray, but more for the singing, not for the actual prayers. I don't keep kosher. I don't do anything, but there's a few reasons why I practice Judaism, which is getting really off topic. But um, the three that I've really felt stick with me are that one because I believe in this God that you know why does everything happen and you know the laws of nature that's why and us trying to figure that out is us becoming closer to God and becoming more godly 
but not so that we're God, so just so we can understand it. The the second reason that I practice religion, practice Judaism, is quite understandable, I think, and that's just the community aspect, you know? At the 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 gala where we were honored, my dad was saying that, like, he just really likes being part of this community, mm-hmm. and I do too, I love it. Mm-hmm. And the third is just because of Jewish history, mm-hmm. you know? That's why, that, that's one of the big driving factors for me to do everything that I do that pertains to Judaism. Is like, you know, there was the... Is that the fear of becoming the broken link? That... No, not... Actually, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit. But I think it's more for honoring, you know, than for fear of it. Because, you know, there's... Like, we look at all these tragedies that we as a Jewish people have experienced. Thousands of events that were just terrible for us. And... I sit here as a mostly free American Jew, and all I have to do to honor their memories and to, you know, make sure that they didn't die or suffer for absolutely nothing is light eight candles for a little bit and, you know, not eat bread for like a week or so or, you know, come to high holiday services. And that's all I have to do, and that, that enough makes me feel happy. Mm-hmm. Well, Eli, I'm really glad that you've spent this time with us. I'm grateful. Uh, you are so much fun for me to just play with ideas, uh, and I I look forward to the next time we talk. I hope it'll be on another podcast down the road. I will share some of the materials we talked about. If you can find me that uh, that link for the the TikTok with um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I'd love to share it with uh, with listeners. You can, of course, click on the the link in the show notes to read the transcript of our conversation together. If you enjoyed this and you want to be notified of new episodes as they come out, you can click on the subscribe button and be sure to share the ideas with someone that you know will enjoy exploring their spirituality in this way as well. And until next time, all you heretics out there, stand proud. Stand proud.